0: You are listening to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast with your host, Hayden Bruce. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. In this episode, I have return guest Thomas J. Ord, who is a theologian and philosopher. Tom was on the show back in episode 35, where we discussed his then-latest book, God Can't, where he tackles the problem of evil, and in that episode, we talked about the broad points and themes of that book and I wanted to have Tom to come back on to discuss the reception of that book now that it's been a year or so later um, to have him answer some more questions about the background of his theology um, to dig deeper into some of the parts of his theology and also to give him a chance to respond to some criticisms that he's gained along the way Um, this was a fascinating conversation I'll definitely have Tom back on in the future Um, he's just Great to talk to about pretty much anything, Um, but I'll have links to all his work in the show notes. Specifically, I'll have a link to an article he wrote coming from the perspective of his theology about the coronavirus and some Christian, uh, bad Christian responses to the coronavirus. And there's also a link to his latest book, God Can't Q&A, where he's collected answers. throughout the years about his theology, specifically um, the, the points that he has in God Can't. He's collected all those answers and put it out in a book. Um, The link in the show notes is the audio version because that was released first. I believe there's a book um, version to follow, so look out for that. But I'll have links to those things in the show notes. Definitely check them out. And if you are enjoying the show and you enjoy this episode, you can support the show by donating to our Patreon account, which you can find a link in the show notes. Um, Please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And share the podcast with your friends. Spread the word. Um, If if you would like to reach out, you can email us at the contact page on the website. You can follow me on Twitter at Hayden S. Bruce. Or you can follow the show at Pragmatic Christ. And you can go over to the website, PragmaticChristian.com. For all the episodes, so let's get into my conversation with Thomas J. Ord. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you guys do too. Let's get into it. I uh, I wanted to have you on to uh, to talk about uh, God Can't. We recorded a while ago. Uh, I think it was episode thirty-five. I had it written down. Um, introducing your latest book, God Can't. It came out back in January of two thousand nineteen, I believe. So it's been a little over a year now, and I wanted to have you on to discuss the reception of the book and how your views have evolved or strengthened since the book's book's release, and also just some criticisms that you've gotten, some responses that you've um, developed since then. Um, As some people know uh, from my show listeners, the problem of evil and suffering is one that uh, weighs heavy uh, on my overall thinking. And I've taken up um, a very anti-theodicist uh, position, uh, but I've really enjoyed your work, Tom. And I think that um, that your book is an incredible resource for those who are like me, who would quicker leave the faith behind than believe that there's a God who allows uh, evil for some majestic overall plan. So we're going to assume that um, the listeners um, are caught up or have been introduced to your work Um, They can go back to episode 35 if they want an introduction, um, and we can move on from there. Um, But perhaps you could um, get us started with a one- to two-minute summary of your view in that book. What are you trying to defend in that book, just so we have a, a place to jump off from?
1: Great. Yeah, my view is that God is essentially or inherently uncontrolling God acts at all levels of existence, God empowers and makes creation possible, and God loves at all aspects or complexities of existence, from the smallest quark to the most complex being. But in every action, God is uncontrolling. And that matters in terms of the problem of evil because that means God simply can't single-handedly prevent the evil that occurs. God empathizes with those who suffer. God really does want to try to heal and fix things, but God simply can't heal single-handedly. So any sort of uh, claims about miracles being supernatural interruptions in which God single-handedly brings about results make no sense to me. But I do think God is the source for all legitimate healings, whether spectacular or sort of the mundane things we find in medicine. I think God works to bring something good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. So sometimes when people go through a difficult time of evil, they see some good that comes from it. They say, oh, well, God is the source of good. So God must have caused or allowed that evil. I say no. But God does work to squeeze whatever good can be squeezed from the evil God didn't want in the first place. And then the final idea is uh, equally controversial. God actually needs us, needs creation, if love is to truly win, if the world's well-being is truly to be established. A lot of theologians don't like the idea of saying God needs anyone or anything I think God needs the world because love is an inherently relational activity. Mm. So that might be more than two minutes, but there you go.
0: (laughs) No problem. Uh, Yeah, it's it's ironic because that last point – uh is probably one of the more controversial ones but it's actually uh one of the one of the main ones that i gravitate to um more than any of the others uh, just coming from my you know a pragmatic perspective uh philosophical pragmatism yes. um but we'll get to um breaking down some of those views some criticisms that people have had in a little bit um, I want to talk about the reception of um, not only God can't, because you've written on these ideas in a couple of different places um, over, you know, for the last couple of years. So, you know, you can take it um, broader to include the uncontrolling love of God um, or just God can't. But what's been the general reception of um, these ideas and your books?
1: Well, I would say I could, I could put the responses in roughly three categories. One category is the person who puts up a cross and says, get thee behind me, Satan. (laughs) These are the people who, uh, you know, think that these ideas are massively heretical and that uh, no person who's a good or a Christian or any, you know, it just makes no sense to them. A second category, and I'm happy to say a surprisingly large category are people who really like the book or like the ideas or like the general proposals I offer. And among those, there's typically three kind of uh, subgroups, we might say. (laughs) One subgroup is what I like to call the theology and philosophy nerds. That is, these are people who, like you, are wrestling with the biggest and toughest questions of life, and this is a proposal that they've not heard of, or at least not heard in the kind of way I articulate it. Secondly, there are a group of people who are, I'll call them survivors or victims of suffering for whom this is truly good news. They don't have to believe God was punishing them or that God was away on other business or allowed this in some way. And so I get tons of letters from people like that. And then the third group is kind of more uh, amorphous maybe. Um, I like to call this group The people who are disenfranchised, the people who are on the outside of the status quo, who, uh, if God is really in control of things, that must mean God has either put them outside of the mainstream or allowed them to be out there, and that doesn't feel particularly loving to them. And so they're attracted to an uncontrolling kind of God. And then the third overall category are people who... um, come up to me after or send me letters or come up to me when after I'm done speaking. They say, you know, I I like some of what you said. I need to think more about it. I've still got questions, which I say that's totally normal. I don't expect people to change their views on something this big instantaneously. Uh, but they, they see there's some kernel of helpfulness or truthfulness or something that's positive there, and they just need to stew on it some more.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I'm interested in you know, talking about the different subgroups um, and their reactions. Of course, you're you're a theologian by trade. You want you know you would like to ideally convince some other academics, some other theologians towards your position. It's got to be a nice feeling. Um, but, sure, but especially for the subject matter it really is the people um that you mentioned towards the la- you know the survivors the disenfranchised it's really their perspectives that i'm assuming you really uh take to heart more than any others i mean a- at least for me when i'm thinking through these problems that's the perspective that i'm working through you know william james talked about when you're doing philosophy you need to listen to the the cries of the wounded yes. and it's exactly the wounded that i feel like are really um the the you know the people that we need to listen to when it comes to especially theologies and especially ones that have such high stakes. Yeah. Um, perhaps you you know you could say a word about about those people and their reception of the work. What what kind of letters have, or emails have you gotten?
1: Oh man, I could read you some if you were really interested. Actually, I don't have my bag here with me, but I'll I'll, I'll tell you a few thi- a few things. Um, you know one one letter that I've read several times when I give a um. Uh, presentation in public is of a woman who was sexually molested by her brother when she was younger. Mm. And she says that um, she had a dream that God came to her while she was being raped and reached out and held her hand. And she said for a few days that was comforting. But then she realized It was totally twisted that God would be there in the midst of her rape and do nothing but hold her hand. (laughs) If God really could have stopped it, why didn't God do that? And so then to read that the God I believe in can't single-handedly prevent what happened to her, that was so helpful to her. It changed her perspective. Or another guy writes from – this guy was from Australia who his daughter has a particularly uh, rare form of – I think it's cancer – Anyway, he was talking about uh, movies that they watch in which, you know, the, the kid who's got cancer gets healed and everybody lives happily ever after. And that's not happening right. in, in their case. But what is happening is they're working through their issues and working with physicians as best they know how, seeing improvement and believing that God is somehow the source of what's good without being capable of single handedly fixing the problems. Um, and I could go on and on. There's tons of those things, but you're right. It's those kinds of stories that you know are, are so encouraging. Mm. Um, you know, it so feels so good to me as one who really my overall aim in life is to live a life of love, and to have people affected in such a positive way by the books uh, makes me feel like uh, some of that some of that desire is being fulfilled. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I've read some of your more academic work and there really is, at least from where I'm standing, there really seems to be a pastoral voice coming from all of your books, even the, even the academic ones. And I feel like that's something that really weighs on your heart.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, you call it pastoral, but I think you could also just call it an empirical kind of approach to things. That is, I'm trying to take into account uh, experience widely understood, whether that's experience of those who have faith or those who don't have faith. And a huge chunk of that experience is experience of radical suffering, of genuine evil. And at least as I see it, uh, no theology can be fully adequate if it doesn't not just account for it, but try to give some kind of explanation for why a loving God Uh, doesn't prevent those genuine evils.
0: Something that I appreciate so much in your approach, um, which really comes out in your responses to people when you're defending your position, Um, is your appeals to the lived experience or lived faiths of actual believers, you end up making a sort of Wittgensteinian move, um, saying that most believers and even theologians talk about God's omnipotence but then embody beliefs to the contrary. Is this Wittgensteinian move explicit in your mind, or is it a happy accident?
1: Yeah, I don't think of it in terms of Wittgenstein, although I can see the connection you're pointing to. Uh, I think of it more as uh, this this thrust that was present. Well, it's been present throughout history, but I think you can find it in the writings of people like G.E. Moore, uh, Roderick Chisholm, Alfred North Whitehead, and others who, who talked about common sense. That is, um, there are certain things that we presuppose in the way we live our lives, and there are certain actions that are true of reality— That if we ignore them, then we're not being faithful to the evidence before us. And uh, I want to be faithful to it. Now, obviously, there's questions of subjectivity and how can you know the truth and the facts and all those kinds of those are legitimate issues. But um, there is this strong impulse in me to try to account for experience in all its dimensions and that's part of I think a tradition in philosophy that's broadly empirical,
0: mm. yeah, you mentioned uh uh Whitehead, and I wanted to ask you about um about process theology, but also open theology. your view um in general um your work is uh, sort of a mix between open theism and process theology. You sort of do your work at the intersection of those two traditions. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, if, you could, if you could explain what is open theism, and could you tell us what your most significant break with open theism is? And then I'm going to ask the same question about process th- theology. But what's, your, what's the biggest break between your work and open theism, um, after explaining what broadly it is?
1: Sure. Open theism as a label emerged in the mid-1990s Amongst uh, some self identifying evangelicals. These were people who were reading scripture, thinking philosophically, wrestling with questions of free will, etc., and came to believe that the classic view of God's foreknowledge, that God could know the future in its entirety, made no sense philosophically, biblically, or theologically. And so they began using this phrase, open theism, to say that the future is open, genuinely open to us and open to God, which means that God just simply can't know with absolute certainty everything that will eventually occur. Now what makes that view, uh, uh, let me start that sentence over. Um, What's at the center of that view that is oftentimes not acknowledged not only by critics, but also even by some who are self-identifying open theists, is a particular commitment to God's relation to time. That is, open theists believe that God experiences time successively, moment by moment. So there's a real past for God and a real future for God. And that's so radically different from the way most Christian and Muslim theologians have talked about God and God's relation to time. Right. Uh, there's also a lot of other elements to open theology that are uh, probably secondary in terms of how people think of it, but they're important, like a relational God, free will, love, that sort of stuff. For me personally, the problems I have with at least what I'll call the classic open theists come down primarily to God's power, uh, most of them wanted to make claims about God's power, which said that God essentially could control others, could unilaterally determine, could single-handedly bring about events, etc. But in their view, God usually didn't use that kind of power and allowed or permitted free creatures to do their things. Most of the open theists don't do a lot working with uh, you know smaller entities in reality most of them focus primarily on human relationships and freedom Uh, but um, they would say that's true of god's relation to the natural world as well that god could control it and maybe even controls it more often than humans Um, and that caused lots of problems for me that that view of god's power and one of the main issues is the problem of evil that i've already mentioned But there are lots of other problems that emerge if one holds that view. For instance, um, if God could control others and single-handedly bring about results, one would think that a God of love who desperately wants to have others understand this God would provide totally error-free sacred scriptures that were completely unambiguous but that's not the sacred scriptures that we have. Uh, There's contradictions, inconsistencies, et cetera. Or one might think that a God who loves the world and could totally control it, could see the negative effects of climate change coming along and just fix it single-handedly. Or, well, you know, you could just keep going and going. So it was that, that, that issue of divine power at least as the way most open theists talk about God's power, that made me think I need to go a different direction on that particular issue. I call myself an open relational theologian, but um, when compared to what I'll call the classical open theists, I think we need to think about God's power differently than how they think of it.
0: I'm guessing that's where your influence from um, process theology comes in. Could you explain broadly, and I know that that's difficult, (laughs) what process theology is uh, and then what your most significant break with process theology is?
1: Sure. So process theologians agree with open theologians. Really, it should be the other way around because process came first. But they both think that God experiences time sequentially or successively. So the past is really past for God and the future is really future for God. Uh, Process folks have been in much deeper dialogue with the sciences, both natural sciences and social sciences. Uh, They tend to be in the more liberal or progressive strands of Christianity, um, but not all of them. Um, And one of the problems with describing process thought, as you noted the way you asked your question, is that uh, there's general disagreement on what are the essential uh, elements of process thought. One a particularly important process theologian, a guy named David Ray Griffin, outlined, I believe it is 12 core doctrine theology in one of his books. Mm-hmm. Another important theologian, a guy named John Cobb, says there is no essential Doctrine of process theology, so you know the difference between zero and 12 is pretty big (laughs) and these are two of your leading voices Right there. there are even some process thinkers who don't believe in God so um, For me probably the there's a lot of reasons why I don't usually call myself a process theologian but one of them that is especially important in the context of uh, God's power has to do with the different ways process thinkers have tried to describe God's power. Um, one way, Alfred North Whitehead, for instance, talks in this kind of way. He talks about God being in the clutches of creativity. Uh, Charles Hartzern talks about the, the social relationship between God and the world as limiting God's power. David Ray Griffin likes to talk about the metaphysical laws that make that God must obey and therefore God uh, can't control others or unilaterally determined. Um, so in the way some of these concept are laid, concepts are laid out, it sounds kind of like something external to God is constraining God. And um, as I thought about the issues, I began to formulate a different way to think about God's power that doesn't sound as if there are external constraints upon God, as if God has somehow got, you know, hands tied behind his back and can't do something because, you know, the devil or these metaphysical laws or the laws of nature are constraining God. And the way I talk about it when I'm talking technically is I call my view essential kenosis, And this is the idea that God's love is inherently uncontrolling. God's love is self-giving and others empowering. And this love comes logically first amongst the divine attributes, which means that God can't fail to love. God can't choose not to love, we might say. And we should understand God's knowledge, God's power, the other attributes in light of this self-giving, others-empowering love. So that's kind of this, you might call it a middle ground between open theism and process theolo- theology, although, you know, some process folks embrace me as part of their camp. Many openness folks embrace me as part of the camp, and I'm not willing to fight about that. i just trying to use language that at least I find most helpful.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that that was uh, a helpful description of both of those and where you lie, in, you know, in between them. Um, I want to ask you, what are some of the assumptions or presuppositions that are necessary for people to hold your view? For example, could a young Earth creationist be an Ordean?
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose it would matter on what aspects of my thought they were focusing I'm not a young earth creationist and I don't think that view fits the empirical evidence well, um, it would be very difficult for young, <laughs> I'm trying to formulate how that might work.
0: Uh, I was using that kind of a silly example, but yeah. I, I just wanted to know what are some of the, you know, what are the least amount of, I, of, um, positions, you know, that someone would have to agree with, with you? Like what are the, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I know what you mean. Um, For me, I I won't give sort of essential ideas that a person must affirm to, you know, accept my proposals. Sure. Maybe what I'll give instead is an idea of my method. And that might help people understand why I go the directions I go. I've already talked Mm -hmm. about how I think being empirical, actually looking at the evidence of life is really important. But for me, my primary motive, both personally and theologically, in terms of doing my theology, is to place the issues of love as central. The way I read the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, love seems to be a central theme, although I don't claim that every passage uh, you know, unequivocally points to a loving God. I've read the Bible, and there are some that don't. <laughs> but... Um, When I read scripture, when I see the witness of God in Jesus, the themes of love rise to the fore. When I think about my own existence and the life I live and the life other people live that I know, I think of love as being our highest ideal, the thing that we ought to strive to express Um, for a variety of reasons, and I've just mentioned a few, love functions as my orienting concern, both personally and theologically. So that means I'm willing to rethink a lot of views, not only about God, but also about humanity, even other creatures in the world as being capable of love. I'm I'm willing to entertain questions of metaphysics and ontology that others might not, because I have this drive to try to uh, think and live uh, in a life of love. Uh, so if you st- if you understand that that's my starting point, that can begin to push you probably towards some of the positions that I find uh, most helpful.
0: Mm. I wanted to um, move towards some of the criticisms that you've received. Um, what are some of the – things that critics have um, the most problem with when it comes to your view? What, what have you come across the most?
1: Yeah, um, you know, a lot of people just have questions to begin with, like uh, what do you do with prayer if this is true? Right. Or um, I think amongst academics, uh, uh, at least Christian theologian academics, probably their first question has to do with eschatology. That is, if God can't control us, then how are we going to be have any kind of hope for some ultimate victory? Right. And I've addressed that in some of my writings, etc. Uh, and so this changes eschatology, at least in the minds of some people. So, uh, you know, those two are kind of more asking questions that take my views and then try to look at its implications. There's some people who just out and out say, look, if God's not omnipotent in the classical way of looking at things, then that's just not God. And that's kind of a, you know, a non-starter. It's hard for me to argue against that kind of a thing. I got some ways that I do that. But, you know, that's that's really definitional probably when it comes down to it. Um, Yeah, so those are some of the Mm -hmm. major criticisms I usually get.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I've i listened to, you know, many different interviews or not really debates, but places where you've been in dialogue with other people defending your view. Omnipotence seems to be um, one of the main ones. And also your definition of love as well, because, uh, you know, your definition of love and your uncontrolling understanding of God and non-coercive understanding of God's love uh, is pretty, you know, central to your your um the way that you solve the problem of evil the way that you deal with it and so i feel like people tend to look at those two things as well as the eschatology that you just mentioned um what are some of the main misunderstandings that you've encountered not necessarily criticisms or disagreements but how have some people misunderstood your view yeah
1: time and time again especially folks who aren't educated but even smart people like Mm -hmm. uh William Lane Craig makes this made this error. Uh,
0: He's who I was thinking of actually. <laughs> oh really? Oh, <laughs> yeah. He he read
1: only a small portion of my work, so mm-hmm. uh, I I won't say that he read it all and could understand it. But he called me a deist,
0: and <laughs> <Yep>.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, and I've had a few other people who seem to think that the options you have is either God is controlling things or God isn't doing anything. And I just think that that's a really puzzling view. Uh, I try to make sure in my writings that I, you know, strongly talk about God, not only active, but necessarily acting in every moment of every creature. So it's so far from deism that, you know, it's, it's strange. But I think it's just the way kind of people have been led to believe and think about God. Uh, If you don't have a God who's powerfully omnipotent and controlling all things, then what good is God? God must Mm -hmm. not be doing anything. Um, So that's a common misunderstanding. Um, Amongst people who read their Bibles a lot, uh, I often get the criticism of saying, well, if you're going to believe this view of God, you obviously can't believe the Bible. This is not the God of the Bible. And I've grown... You know, I've got a lot of responses to that, but my primary one is to say, um, "Show me a passage in the entire Bible that explicitly says God single-handedly brought about events, and there was no creaturely contribution." In fact, sometimes when I'm in a in a big audience, I'll offer a thousand dollars to someone <laughs> who can come up with this sort of thing, and. You know, there is nothing that explicitly says that. Now, there's some things that only mention God acting, but they don't explicitly say there's no creaturely contribution. And so um, a lot of folks misunderstand my view, or maybe it's it's not misunderstanding my view. Maybe they think that my view can't be aligned in any way with the scriptures, uh, Christian scriptures because they come to those Christian scriptures presupposing a particular view of God's power that I don't think can be found there.
0: Mm, yeah, there's uh, there's lots of gods of the Bible <laughs> throughout right. history.
1: Yes, yeah, that's right.
0: Uh, it's funny that you brought up um, – William Lane Craig, he, that was actually my next question about his response oh, okay. of, or his, you know, his understanding or, you know, his comment that it sounds like what you're proposing is deism. I found that very interesting or strange, but I guess we can move on. Uh, <laughs> I did, I, you know, your view of God is that he's working at every single level of creation. He's intimately working at every level. Um, right. And one thing that um, in some responses, I, I, I see this issue um, important in the way that they're trying to understand you. I want you to ask about God's values. If God's working at every level and he cares and loves for every level of creation, the atoms, the cells, um, does your God see all creation equally valuable or do humans have a priority in God's valuation of things?
1: Oh, excellent question. I think uh, that God values greater degrees of complexity because greater greater degrees of complexity has the potential for deeper and more vast value experiences, beauty, love, truth, etc. So uh, while I think God cares for all create creation, I think uh, God is luring, calling, persuading, commanding, moving <laughs> creation toward more complexity. And of course, that view fits very nicely with an evolutionary view of of the world. Um, so, um, some people will criticize me uh, in this kind of way, and maybe you have this in mind. Um, a guy named John Sanders sometimes makes this view. He'll he'll say, uh, look, um, God must love cancerous cells more than God loves the people who have those cells, because if God really loved the people, God would destroy the cancerous cells and save their lives. Yeah. And I think that's you know I think that's a sophisticated criticism. My response to that is that God loves both the cells and the and God is working to try to um, make the uh, cells non-cancerous. So God's not in the business of annihilating cells, um, but I can understand that worry in a kind of uh, oh a utilitarian kind of notion of you know you got to destroy one to save the other kind of approach.
0: Yeah that that is where my question was leading to um because if God's working and empowering at every level of creation, uh, you know, the question, where does God's influence begin and end? You know, if God is empowering the parasite to live its life fully, if is God partly responsible for the horrible suffering someone may go through, you know, having the parasite? God may not be able to stop a murderer from shooting an innocent person, but is God responsible for the gun keeping its atomic constitution? You know, these are the sort of questions that, Um, you know, that I have in my own head. Um, I've heard some people touch on them. So I wanted to know how you respond, you know, to something like that.
1: Yeah, sometimes I do that by getting philosophical and talking about God being a necessary cause in the becoming or existence of everything from cells to, you know, gun elements, Mm -hmm. uh, etc. Other times I'll talk about a way we might distinguish between the word responsible and the word culpable. There are parents who are responsible for the life of every rapist and murderer who has ever lived. In other words, without the second union of two people, the rapist or the murderer or whoever would have never existed. But we don't usually think those people are culpable for what the rapist and the murderer did because we think the rapist and murderer had their own choices. Uh, you know, maybe they had bad parents, but ultimately they had to make the choice. So and to use that analogy in terms of God, and it's not a perfect analogy, but in terms of God, we can say because God is a necessary cause in the existence of all things. and and this is another little side thing to add in here that I don't always talk about, uh, God necessarily creates moment by moment the things that exist. God simply can't choose not to create the elements of the gun or the cell in a particular moment to save the lives of others. God is responsible in the sense of being a uh, metaphysically necessary cause, but God's not culpable in the sense of having the capacity to prevent the existence or use of these elements that do evil in the world. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, it does. Sorry, I was muted. No problem. Um, yeah, it, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting part of your argument. An interesting thing to work through because, um, you know, I was thinking about the the parent analogy that you give, um, which goes well with a deist understanding. You know, the parent gives birth, uh, you know, or creates the child in the beginning, and then you know they go on and live their lives. You know, the parents not responsible for their lives twenty five years down the line. But as you said this understanding of God is, you know, intimately involved, you know, at every moment moving forward. You know, it's like, yes. it's as if the parent was helping, you know, helping the child of their life at every single moment, which in that case and the analogy, which you said is not perfect, but, um, yeah. you know, they would be responsible if their kid, you know, went and did something if they were right there with them. Um,
1: well, uh, maybe not so. What, right, what right. if you thought of it like this, that the parent is constantly at the side of the child calling, commanding, luring, but the parent can't control the child, even though mm. they're at the child's side. Right. Um, there's another element, though, that we'd have to put in this scenario that I oftentimes talk about, and actually this is a criticism I sometimes get until people hear my overall view. Sometimes people will say something like this. Um, Look, I know that sometimes – I can use my body to stop some evil from happening. You know, let's say uh, a kid starts to run out into the street in front of a car and I'm close enough, I can reach and grab the kid by the arm and save the kid's life. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thwarting the free will expression of this kid, but surely this is a loving act to stop it. Um, Can't God do that? And then I point to a very classic notion in uh, Judaism and Christianity that God is not a bodied creature. God is incorporeal. God is a universal spirit without a localized body to grab kids who are getting to run out in the street or to use our previous ant. Uh, analogy. God is the parent there without a body to grab the kid who's about ready to take the gun and shoot other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but God is present there calling, persuading, commanding, etc., urging us to do the right instead of the wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I'm not necessarily criticizing your view. I just, you know, yeah. it's one of the things that I keep rolling in my mind um, as I approach your work but it, it's funny that your responses keep rolling straight into the next question that i have um so <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> so, so, so so you know talking about the anal- you know the common analogy in conversations about the problem of evil you know you can use any number of different uh, different examples but you know they all go something like Um, There's an evil approaching perhaps a person who's going to do an evil thing to another person who is innocent. Um, And if God could do something or intervene or stop the evil, then he would if he could. You know, that's part of the loving aspect of the problem of evil. And so the question is, does he, does he not, can he, can he not? And this is something, you know, this exact example is used by everyone no matter what position they take. You know, this example always comes up or something like it. So I've listened to, you know, a bunch of interviews that you've done and read a handful of written critiques of your position. And I wanted to ask you if you've noticed something that um, your critics often do, um, and hopefully I can explain myself well. Um, It's clear that in your position— Your account of God's non-course of love is the theological conclusion that you arrived at after attempting to reconcile belief in a loving God with the reality of evil in the world. This is your response to the problem of an all-loving God not intervening or stopping evil actions and events, you know, which is the very problem of evil. Um, right. But in order to present that conclusion, you have to defend that conclusion theologically. So you give an account of essential kenosis and a definition of love is non coercive. Uh, you know, apart, you know, as well as other things. Now, what I've noticed many of your critics do is they hear you say God can't, and they respond with, "Well, why not?" And then you explain why not by explaining your position of essential kenosis and non coercive love, and then they all do something really interesting. They start to challenge your definition of love and begin arguing that God could and would intervene, that course of action can be loving and should be loving. They basically want to reject your dissolving of the theoretical problem of evil and end up arguing for the very problem itself. So you say God would if he could, but he can't. And then your critics say God would and he could, but... You know, either he does in some way or he chooses not to uh, for some reasons. So, the would God if he could problem is the very problem of evil. And so, I wanted to ask you what you think about this response because the whole problem, it seems to me, um, I mean, uh, it sounds a little reductionist um, putting it this way, but a lot of the problem boils down to how you respond to that example. You know, yes. if God could, would he intervene? And so, the next part of that. Of the, of the debate, of the philosophical debate, you know, is how you respond to the next part of that. And when you say God can't do, you know, that God can't prevent it unilaterally, uh, your critics, they kind of forget that that's the next part that they're supposed to discuss, and they say, well, God right. would, and he could. So I want to ask you what you thought about that response.
1: Yeah, I've noticed that uh, on occasion as well, um, and I'm not quite sure. You know, obviously I have to try to intuit why they go the directions they do. One possible issue here, and I've I've tried to address this in some places, but not very often, so it might be new to you. Um, one perhaps difference or stumbling block, or maybe I'll just say one issue, is whether or not we claim God's inability to prevent evil because God is uncontrolling love is an a priori claim or an a posteriori claim. Mm-hmm. In other words, is it true by definition that this is the case? Or is it true because it looks like that's the way we can best make sense out of life? And I think sometimes in the discussion, some folks think I'm making an a priori claim And then they start, you know, jumping to the kinds of uh, conclusions you mentioned. When my claim is a little more humble than that, I'm claiming that a posteriori, if we look at the world and we look at the way things work, then we would expect a God who could control to prevent evil to do so. Uh, Yep, we don't find that happening. Therefore, we must a posteriori uh, suspect that God doesn't have that kind of power. So I think that's that's one way to get at that uh, what you rightly see as a problem amongst some of my interpreters.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't you know, I don't want to coax you into, you know, <laughs> being uncharitable towards people. So, just from my, you know, purely my perspective, it's just an interesting thing to witness as a listener of these debates because yeah. you you're, you know, you're attempting to solve this problem of evil that historically has been a problem, you know, and that's usually the topic of discussion in these kind of discussions. And so you're trying to, you know, solve or figure out that problem. And when it comes to this example of, you know, if God could, would he, um, they end up reinforcing the problem of evil rather than addressing it.
1: Yep. Yep. You're exactly right. Yep.
0: Which makes me want, you know, it makes me wonder if these sort of people and, you know, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I think it's a very common widespread thing. Um, It makes me wonder if they don't truly understand or feel the reality of the problem of evil which, you know, as we've mentioned, you do. You know, you're taking an empirical perspective, thinking of the sufferers and the the disenfranchised that we mentioned earlier. Um, but I wonder if people don't truly feel the problem of evil um, the way that I would like them to. You know, I'm thinking of William James, his discussion of healthy-minded people versus sick yeah. souls, and I wonder if they're generally healthy-minded.
1: I think that could be true in some cases. I think in other cases it could be, that people just can't imagine giving up a certain view of god's power mm. that they think by definition must be true otherwise it's not god so that might be two good reasons the one you mentioned and this power one
0: mm. yeah i i also wanted to ask you about the whole um the language of um of talking about solving the problem of evil yeah. what do you, what do you think it means to solve the problem of evil shouldn't evil always be a problem for us
1: Yeah, I like to use the stronger language for a variety of reasons. One, I actually think my proposal solves at least the theoretical question that others have not uh, solved. In other words, if God is powerful and loving, why is there evil in the world? Um, My solution doesn't solve the question of whether or not evil is a possibility, Um, I think evil will always be a possibility, even though I have an eschatology that says that someday God may be able to persuade all creatures capable of doing evil to do good instead. Um, But sometimes I also like to use the word solve because I get really frustrated with people who, especially in the academic circles, maybe even almost entirely academic circles, who approach the problem of evil trying to defend the classic view of God's omnipotence rather than giving up on it. Mm. They, they're not willing to rethink a crucial step in the problem or crucial premise in the problem. And instead, what they want to do is say, well, you know, you're, let me show you how you're not an idiot if you believe in God, even though we're not going to really solve this problem of evil. Right. And and I think the stakes are way too high to play defense all the time. I think the stakes are so high you ought to play offense and be willing to rethink some of your fundamental premises. And that's what I'm doing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I get I get tired of many academic uh, uh, reactions to the problem of evil. Um, you know, talking about it being a lived reality. Um, I think I might have mentioned it in our last conversation. There's a place in uh, the posthumous uh, book uh, by William James, uh, "Problems with Philosophy" or "Problems in Philosophy," something like that, where he says that, uh, you know, he's talking about pluralism versus monism, and he says that for the pluralists, the problem of evil is only the practical problem of how to get rid of it. Right, right. And that leads in that that leads into my next question, where one critic um, in, in I can't remember where, but one critic says that your position um deals well with the philosophical problem of evil, but doesn't actually help with the defeating of real evil in the world. And I wanted you to respond to that because I think he's I think he gets it opposite. I think he gets it wrong.
1: Yeah, I think what I try to do, especially in the last chapter of God can't, is to give a theoretical argument for why our actions really matter, why mm-hmm. what we do to overcome evil isn't just, you know, piddling our thumbs, Uh, it really makes an ultimate difference. Our lives are significant. Uh, If the critic is saying, I don't give a lot of how-tos, well, that's a fair criticism. I mean, that wasn't the purpose of my book to lay out, you know, a bunch of practical ways to overcome evil. Um, Those books are important and I'm, you know, wholeheartedly support them, but I'm in this particular book laying out the, the theological issues to make the argument that unless we and other creatures do something, then love can't win. God's ultimate goals for the well-being of all creation will be thwarted, and so our lives really matter.
0: Mm. Yeah, I uh, I was frustrated by that um, by that criticism because uh, for you know it goes back to what you mentioned earlier. One of the um, One of the points in your position is that we must cooperate with God and, you know, with traditional views, um, God is all powerful and we're all just, you know, pieces in a game moving towards, you know, some master plan of his. Uh, You can take a position in life. You know, I think it's, um, you know, theologically bankrupt. I don't think I don't think it's. A viable option, but many people do. Um, You know, comfort is an existential uh, need or desire for human beings. Uh, We don't like to be uncomfortable. Um, But my point is, you know, we could be led by certain, you know, theologies and traditional theologies or classical views saying that God is the one who's really in charge. We're all just, yeah. you know, pieces in a game that he's playing. Whereas, you know, so you could take the position where, um, you know, well, I don't need to do anything. Like uh, climate science, I don't have to do anything. This is all part of God's plan. I don't have to participate right. in stopping anything. But in your view, your view actually entails a practical response. Um, exactly. I, and so, and the, so, I think that that criticism criticism is misguided. But perhaps you could talk a little bit more about. Um, about that point of your position, of us being collaborators with God.
1: Yeah, I mean, for someone like you who understands the value of pragmatic philosophy, I mean, this is the part of the book that I'm suspecting you really are seeing the the value in. Because I'm saying, you know, as you said, what we do really does matter. Uh, the number of people who think that God is predetermined, predestined everything, and we have no agency, you know, I don't find as many of those around today. What I find, especially in the academy, are a group of people who say something that I think is um, is is an attempt toward the direction I go, but doesn't go far enough. They'll say something like this. Uh, you know, the God of the universe, hasn't predetermined everything, um, and God is inviting you to participate in God's good work in the world. So you have a role to play. Would you join with God in doing that? But then they have this back in the back of their mind, a sort of uh, default kind of claim, an assumption they bring to the argument that God essentially has the kind of power to fix things single-handedly if God wants to. Right. God really doesn't need our cooperation and help, um, and so in the books I, you know, try to throw out some analogies, and one of them is the idea that a preschool teacher says to her kids, uh, "Look, if you don't help pick up the toys, nobody's going to go home tonight."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, in reality, the preschool teacher can just pick up all the toys herself, and everyone's going to go home. What the kids do really doesn't matter. And I think that's the way a lot of these theologians today who talk about participating with God, the God who could fix it single-handedly, that's kind of what it strikes me as. Uh, our, our, our actions don't really matter. But in my view, all is lost if we don't cooperate with God. Mm. Uh, now, God continues to work with whatever happens in the world uh, so, um, you know, our lives matter, but it's also not the end of things When we don't cooperate. It's just that when we don't, it changes the equation. There's new data and there are real consequences. Genuine evil really occurs. Some values that were possible in one moment might never be possible again. And so there's an ultimate difference uh, for, to what we do. And I think folks who want to live their lives in a pragmatic kind of way, given the philosophies you find valuable, and I do as well, I think that provides a metaphysical framework to undergird those deep intuitions.
0: Mm. Yeah. One um, one value I uh, you know among many that I find in your work is. That uh, in recent years, um, various forms of mysticism are becoming very popular, and there's much that I like about mysticism. For a time, I was mystic. You know, as I was deconstructing, you know, my old faiths, Um, you know, there was much that I found valuable in it. Uh, But then I came to a point where I just found much of it um, ethically troubling. You know, this this view of, um, I, I. I can't recall um, what the technical term is in theological circles, but this this kind of perfectionist uh, view where God's will is to perfect uh, humanity and creation. And so our suffering is part of that. So it's part of, you know, so it, 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 treats, you know, we're supposed to treat suffering as a gift and evil as a gift and all these different things because it helps us become, you know, the kind of people that we're supposed to be. So our participation with God, you know, involves the pain and the happiness, but it's all supposed to be accepted as a gift. And I find, I find much of mysticism good, you know, the, the emphasis on love. But then when they start talking about evil, I find it completely bankrupt.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not genuine evil in the way I define it. It's,
0: it's it's just what.
1: Yeah, it is. And um I don't I can't live that way, so why have a theology that says that? Um,
0: exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Um so uh I want to ask you from your perspective, what do you think the most compelling critique against your view is that you've received? What's the one argument or criticism that makes, you know, you think, you know what they could be right?
1: Yeah, I used to say it was the eschatology one, mm. but now I've formulated ideas and thought my way to conclusions that I find pretty satisfying. So um, that, that wouldn't be it. Um, I think maybe the one that worries me the most, even though I try to safeguard myself on it, is the worry that um, that somehow I can um, – now, what's the right way to articulate it, um, that I'm overly confident in my ability to reason to, uh, to the, the problem. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, I'm rejecting the mystery claims left and right. But I'm also <laughs> saying, I'm also saying, you know, I don't know everything. So right. I don't have certainty. You know, I'm trying to be humble here. But I think the ones that give me the greatest pause these days are to say, look, Tom, um, you know, you can't know for sure the proposal is the right one. Um, And so, you know, you have to be cautious and careful. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to find a place between absolute certainty on one hand and absolute mystery on the other hand. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, where that right place is, I'm not always sure.
0: Yeah, um pragmatism offers a robust understanding of fallibilism and fallibilism is a is yes. a it's a tricky thing because, you know, as yeah. a fallibilist, you have the freedom to say things you wouldn't normally say, say things without perfect certainty or foundations, which makes it sound like you are, you know, you're deflecting mystery claims left and right. It sounds like you're super certain about things that you couldn't possibly be certain about. But right. you, say it, you, you say it with the freedom of fallibilism. You say it with the freedom of I could be wrong. This is, yes. you know, this is where my experience is leading me. But, yeah, it's, it's tricky in how to communicate that well.
1: Yeah, and I even – so not, not only could I be wrong, it's likely that aspects <laughs> of what I'm saying is wrong. Yeah. But my proposal usually is to people who come up with that kind of a claim is to say, look, um, I'm presenting you with a model. I don't know if it's the right model. I'm not certain about it. That's for sure. It can be adjusted. But here's a model to make sense of reality the way we live our lives, the way God might be, the values, the disvalues, et cetera. Now, if you think there's something wrong here, we'll come up with a better model. Right. I'll switch to your model if it's better. But this is the best one I know how I have at this point. And it's a whole lot better than just throwing up the big mystery card or running around saying you've got it all figured out. Here's the model. You come up with a better one. Here's the that's my challenge.
0: Mm. Yeah, I don't I don't recall anywhere in your work where you demonstrate some kind of foundation. You know, you talk about empiricism no. and experience, but you don't even make that a foundation.
1: No, no, not in the cl- the right, technical right. sense of a foundation. Yeah.
0: Um I want to talk about the development or evolution of your thought. Um how has I'm trying to think of a of a way where we can actually frame this. I guess we could just perhaps with the uncontrolling love of God um or God can if you want, but what's something that um I want to ask about, you know, how your views or argument has changed or developed um since you uh came or, you know, published these views. I guess you could take either one of those books since they cover similar ground, but You know, you've been you've been in a lot of debates, uh, you know, not formal debates, but in a lot of venues and places where you are questioned and and criticized or have the, you know, the ability to defend your position. Um, How is your view? How have your views um, changed or developed um, through this process over the last few years?
1: Yeah, there's tons of things I could say about that. So I'm trying to think of what's a good illustration or good example um, here, here's, here's one. Um, I wrote my dissertation and published it in, and graduated in 1999. And in that dissertation, I was working at least part of the dissertation. I was working with the questions of evil and I formulated a view that in that dissertation, I called essential free will theism. And at the heart of it, it's the idea that we have free will and God can't take it away. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's not that uncommon of a view, but um, the way I framed it was maybe a little bit peculiar. Um, and so, as I was working with this and be continuing to think, I remember being at an American Academy of Religion conference. And a friend of mine, a guy named Alan Pageant, um, presented a paper uh, in, a, in a session on Wesleyan theology and process thought. And in this presentation, he criticized process folks for not beginning their theological reflection with God's nature, but instead starting with science or their own experience or the world or, you know, not to use the technical language. They didn't start with theology proper. Mm -hmm. And I listened to his criticism and I thought, well, you know, okay, Does it matter where you start as long as you get an overall theology that makes a lot of sense? Um, Then I said, you know, maybe I should take this as a challenge. What if I started with theology proper and came to a view that, as you've mentioned, is similar to process thought in some ways? And so that idea started me down the path of this uh, technical phrase that we've both mentioned, this essential kenosis theology that starts with God's nature of love and then tries to work out the implications of what that might look like in the world. So that's a development in my thought that's more methodological than probably substantive, but I think it's pretty important insofar as it helps me as I engage, especially folks who are theologians, uh, first and foremost, in the kind of methodology they uh, assume. Hmm. Let me give you a second illustration.
0: Yeah.
1: Actually, it's kind of a continuation of the first one. But um, more recently, a guy named um, Kevin Van Hooser, who's a an evangelical theologian, wrote a really long essay, kind of... Partly criticizing me, partly just asking questions of my position. And he did this in relationship to a um, a Trinitarian theologian, uh, Webster. I forgot his first name. Anyway, uh, and one of his big worries is that I don't start with the Trinity when I do my theology, Yeah. And because of that, he, you know, he asked these questions that even though they're questions, you read into them that he's suspicious of my thought. So, um, you know, I I had a variety of ways I could respond to them. One of them would be, you know, look, why pick the Trinity as the starting point? Why not something else like the Bible? You're an evangelical (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) I, I could do that sort of a thing. But I thought, you know, okay. let's start with the Trinity then. And let's start with something like what he thinks is the most viable option for a Trinity, something like a social Trinity. If I start there, can I end up where I think I ought to? I think I can. And so I just sort of, in in part of my response, laid out, okay, let's start with the social Trinity, if that's what you want to start with, if that's would you like now? Let's ask these questions of evil and Jesus, and what this would look like, and do we have to make the kind of moves that most social Trinitarian move, most Trinitarian theologians make, or does the Trinity in itself uh, present other options than the ones you know this Webster guy takes, etc. So um, that's a way of using a tactic or a strategy that tries to. Meet someone where they're at and their commitments and then say, you know, you don't have to give up all those commitments to end up where I'm at.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting exercise. Um, Coherence is, you know, a really uh, big theme in in pragmatism. Um, You know, there's coherence theories of truth um, defended by some. Um, So it's interesting, you know, it kind of – it, it it bolsters um or perhaps gives confidence in your view that it coheres or there is coherence generally with um other views that some people may take up against you and think that it's a completely different position but it's interesting to see how you know how well different positions can work together and i think that's a really interesting exercise thanks for that
1: yeah yeah you're welcome I, it reminds me of something whitehead said and i can't quote it perfectly but something to the effect of uh, if you take the truth seriously, no matter where you find it, then it ought to lead you to some broader truth or the metaphysics that it affirms the broader truths. And I, I think that's generally the case.
0: Mm, for sure. Um, I want to ask you uh, a short question. Is there anyone who, um, who, you view, who you view as most influential on your thinking or theology? Not necessarily in similarity, but someone who has provoked you more than anyone else?
1: A couple of influential people in my life. Uh, when I graduated from college, I took a position as an associate minister of youth. And during that time, I, it was before the internet, um, I was cut off from a lot of great dialogue partners. And so I took the writings of Hans Kung as my daily devotionals. And I don't necessarily agree with everything he said, but that was a formative time in my life as I work through what I think in relation to what Hans Kuhn thinks. Hmm. Um, John Wesley, the theologian, has been an important dialogue partner. Um, You know, John Cobb has been important to me. I don't know. I'm— A person who likes to draw from as many resources as I can Hmm. and I want to be open to good ideas wherever I might find them and so that means that I often walk on the boundaries of various traditions or take things that I think are good about various thinkers and reassemble them in ways that make sense to me personally.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that about you. Um, I very much am into mediating positions um, and finding the commonality, yeah. the similar, the similarities, how different positions can work together and cohere. So I appreciate that a lot. Um, we're coming to uh, the end of our time. I wanted to ask you about um, current events uh, with the coronavirus. You actually posted an article today. Uh, which was funny, um, about some of the responses that uh, I've seen and apparently you've seen, uh, which are sort of, you know, at this point common responses or typical responses of some people that you would expect in the Christian world. Um, I thought maybe as a way to close and also kind of um, give an example of the way that you deal with uh, various issues through your perspective, perhaps you could— Explain what you were talking about in that article today. What are some of the problematic responses to the coronavirus um, that you've come across as, as well as I have?
1: Yeah, well, I'll mention f- four. How's that? Perfect. <laughs> one, <laughs> one is that, you know, this is all a part of God's plan, that mm-hmm. God's either punishing people, or, you know, God has appointed everything uh, kind of a determinist God, and that view has no place for genuine free will. It makes God the author of evil. There's all kinds of problems with it. Second one is that God is allowing this or permitting this, the coronavirus, presumably because it's either part of God's plan or it's a a lesser or it's a greater good than stopping it. Um, And this unfortunately makes God then the one who allows bad things in the world. Um, And I present reasons why we shouldn't go that direction. Third, uh, some people just throw out the mystery card here and they make that claim based upon their view that God is entirely different from us, that we couldn't say anything positive about God's actions because God is absolute mystery. And uh, I I think if you go down that road, it's hard to imagine why you should just believe in God at all if God's absolute mystery. I didn't talk in that piece today um, of the fourth position. And that's the position that says, Eight. It's totally up to us. God's got nothing to do with it. God is either, there is no God, you're either an atheist, or it's the deist God who's uninvolved in the world. And the problem I find with that is that it's, it easily leads to a kind of pessimism, a hopelessness, that, you know, it's totally on our, if it's totally up to us, unaided by any divine inspiration or power, uh, it can get pretty depressing pretty quickly. So um, those are the views that I don't find helpful, Uh, and then I propose my uncontrolling love view, which says that God is active, is empowering, is inspiring, but can't prevent the coronavirus single-handedly. God asks us to do uh, an important role, an essential role. In fact, God doesn't just ask. God needs for us to act in certain ways to mitigate the harm of the, the virus.
0: Yeah, I think that um, you know, your as your article um says uh, you know, our current situation is a, actually a perfect example of um of where your views can come in, especially the practical aspect of it of, you know, our cooperating with God. You know, the the, the virus isn't going to go away unless uh unless we participate with <laughs> wisdom and actually love. You know, a, a lot of people are getting angry. Um because there's many people who, there are many people who are saying, you know, this is either a hoax or no big deal. I'm young, I'm healthy. You know, it's just the flu. I'm just going to go out and do whatever and go around whoever, yep. um, which is an extremely, um, not just an unwise position, but a selfish and an unloving position. Where it's like if love requires us to, um, you know, to follow the, the the guidelines for how to mitigate this thing, uh, and it requires us all doing it. If we leave it all up to God um, and just go about our business, I, you know, I there's many people both in my personal life and other, you know, strangers who I've seen online who are saying, you know, it's all up to God. If we get sick, that's His plan. Um, I've seen yeah. many post, I've seen many posts like this, um, yep. like that. Uh, and I'm saying, no, like we have some responsibility here. <laughs> uh, exactly. If, if God's going to do anything here, it's going to be in cooperation with us, distancing from ourselves, washing our hands and everything. So I just thought that the, the current events um, were a perfect uh, example uh, uh, of a way of fleshing out the various parts of, of your view.
1: Thanks. I appreciate you saying that.
0: Uh, well, uh, I will have a link to that article uh, for anyone that wants to read it. Um, you you post lots of different articles. I'm also part of your um, your email list. You send stuff Thank out you. regularly. And I'll have links to uh, all those things. You're always, um, you know, you, you post a lot about um, various current events and, and tying them to your views. So there's lots of different examples of how to think about your views for anyone that's interested. And I'll have links to all of that in the show notes um, before we uh sign off, uh what's next for Tom Ord?
1: <laughs> in terms of writing or Yeah, yeah, your general?
0: work.
1: Well, actually, I am uh putting together a book uh that answers a lot of questions people have from God can't. So, you know, I get folks saying, Well, if this is true then what's this mean for mm-hmm. all the things we've been talking about? You know, prayer, or actions, eschatology, whatever. So I thought I'd write a short book that's very conversational in nature to answer those questions, and um, then I've got some other writing projects, but that's the one that's at the front of my mind at the moment.
0: Perfect. When can we expect that?
1: I hope to have it up by out by summer. This is oh. I've actually just to let you know. Here's my strategy for this baby. <laughs> uh, since you probably you probably enjoy this kind of thing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm actually going to do the audio book first. And then after the audio book is up, I'm going to do the print book. Um, So I can get that audio book up in pretty short fashion. Nice. And um, so it's a different way of going about things that I'm going to try this time.
0: Very nice. Well, I'll be looking out for that. Um, Where can people go to learn more about your work other than the links that I will provide in the show notes?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean you'll probably provide my homepage, uh, thomasjor.com. Uh, you know, I've got books on Amazon if they're interested in books. Uh, I'm on social media quite a bit. So if folks want to ask questions there, I do my best to answer those in that setting.
0: Well, perfect. I'll have links to all those things. Thank you so much, Tom, for coming on.
1: Hey, thank you. I've really enjoyed this.